is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm, I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We may not have all the answers, but we do have all the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with AOC and get some great stuff that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up at theartofcharm.com. That's where we'll email you our fundamentals toolkit that covers topics like body language and nonverbal communication, dating, attraction, persuasion, business networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. And we've got our programs, our live events, running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. Guys come from all over the world. If you're committed, you can make it happen. We're sold out a few months in advance, so if you're thinking about it even a little bit, get in touch by phone or email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. Get some info from us now so you can plan ahead. Looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. Today we're talking with professor of pickpocketry, Bob Arno. We're gonna learn about tricks of the trade, how the psychology of pickpocketing actually works, and how to spot and catch thieves for ourselves. So enjoy this one with Bob Arno. You're working with Europol, you, you probably have worked with a lot of law enforcement agencies, I would imagine. Uh, well, yes, you know, a couple maybe each year. It, it varies. It goes up and down in intensity and locations and all of that. There are no precise ground rules other than that I think I'm one of the few who is doing this. So it's a little weird uh, until you understand why and my passion, and then it becomes very clear. Well, tell us what you do in one sentence, and we'll extrapolate your passion and everything from there. Yeah. I am a good stage pickpocket, and because I have done this for maybe 40 years, I can also see who is a thief in the street. So and because of that quality, I can work with law enforcement. That's great. So tell us what a stage pickpocket is. It's pretty clear, but tell us a anyway. A stage pickpocket really um, is not that exciting, except for the people who sit in the audience, not for the guy who is doing it on stage. It's like bicycling. You know, once you've learned to steal a wallet or a tie or a watch. Uh, the moves are pretty much repetitive, but it basically means I go out in the audience and uh, I am presented maybe as a hoax speaker, speaker. It could be they say, here's the chef uh, for the evening, or here's the man who is going to talk about the mathematics at the convention. And then uh, as I start out, I walk through, I shake hands with people, I steal, I come up on stage, and then I let the cat out of the bag. I reveal that I was a pickpocket. People laugh, have a good time. And then from there, I proceed to uh, give them reality, which means I show them how credit card fraud is done and uh, how people steal your bag or your phone and what you can do not to be a victim. Excellent. And that sounds like a lot of fun. People think you're some normal dude. They're not on the lookout. And then you walk through and say hi to everybody. And you go up and say, did anybody lose a Rolex? Did anybody lose a wallet? Did anybody lose a bra or whatever? Not that I can steal everything. You know, the bra I leave to you. But uh, the Rolex actually is not something that I can steal. There are people who can steal a Rolex. But since you actually break the pin where the strap meets the, the foundation of the watch, only a street pickpocket can steal 
a watch because to some extent you destroy it a little bit. Right. It's not funny when you get your watch back and you got to take it in. It's $300 to have it fixed. You got it. A service of a Rolex usually costs more than most people pay for a new one. Right. No, I've, I've heard. I, I heard uh, if something inside it breaks, it's like a grand uh, to start for them to open it up or whatever. It's like that much money. Well, you know, the weakest part of a strap is actually uh, where the two straps meet. I mean, depending on whether it's a metal one that comes across where you have to kind of move it over your hand or whether it opens up with a pin. So all of those moves varies from watch to watch to watch. And the majority of the watches you can steal without ruining anything. But a Rolex is a very sturdy and a very strong watch. And when the thieves actually steal it, they grab your hand in a kind of a mugging scenario. But by the time you realize something, they're back on a scooter and they take off and, you know, they're 20 yards away. Right, right. Exactly. Interesting. So there's one of the major differences, I would imagine, between what's essentially kind of a magic show type of performance versus actual thievery? Well, in my particular uh, case, uh, doing a stage pickpocketing, which has been my bread and butter for many years, it's not so much nowadays, since now I do more about warning and training law enforcement. But in the heyday of my career, which was in Las Vegas for about 20 years on some of those big stages, it got a little repetitive and, you know, doing the same thing in the contract where, where you had to work year after year and you had very little time off. So that's very nice when you start out because Las Vegas is what most entertainers want to cap their career. Um, uh, however, uh, stage pickpocketing, as I said, it is unique. There are very few people who are doing it, so you get a lot of laughter from it. But as one continues and grows and learns more and more, uh, it gets more intriguing how a criminal thinks and how one can teach the world all of this sophistication, how to, um, I guess, put the pin in the wheel rolling forward and make it difficult for the bad guys. Yes, and I definitely want to get into that psychology. But first, how did you get interested in this? I mean, you're not a criminal, right? So you Well, you're absolutely right. Of course, the majority of the of people when they start seeing me work or if they see the show for example, they will think that I must have a background way back in crime in some shape or form, you know, the old Fagan story where an older guy uh, gets the two some young people to steal on behalf. And I have to tell you that that type or that format still exists, meaning there are Romanian gypsy kings who live in very fine uh, mansions and they do go out in Bulgaria and Romania and they kind of buy or lease or rent, whatever word you want to use, uh, young people, young girls, usually 14 to 15. They hire them, they train them to do pickpocketing, and then they send them in gangs into Paris and Rome and different cities in Europe. But in my case, no, I don't have that background. I would love to tell you an exotic anecdote and say I went clean by the time I was 19. But that's not the case. You hear an accent, and the reason for that is I was born in Sweden. I took an interest in this as a teenager. There happened to be a very famous pamphlet, I would say, or shall we say an exclusive little book that magicians could buy in the 50s. And they had kind of a separate insert. So you, you bought the folder for this book and then you decided whether you want card sharks or throwing a dice in a cheating way or doing a pickpocketing trick. So they only taught one particular trick, and I was a teenager at the time, and I bought this thing, and it floored me. 
So I started doing this back in Sweden where I was born and I got a tremendous reaction. And as a teenager, I guess you could say uh, the same way as a nerd today, get uh, hip on doing hacking on a computer. I, as a nerd, as a sort of a comedy magician, as a teenager, I got attention from that. And it started a road on this, you know, forward road on, on uh, researching crime. My father was a judge. So the communica- communication or the chats around the table was very often about how a thief never or a criminal never fesses up. They always have an excuse somehow. So I hitchhiked across Europe, performing in very small places and uh, went out in the streets of Paris and and London and saw the real thieves. I couldn't connect with them. Uh, I could watch a little bit and I could get the foundation. But it took me about three, four years before I had, I would say, a performance show where I could start working professionally week after week after week. Interesting. So you, yeah, this was kind of like, oh my gosh, if I learn how to steal enough wallets, I might get a girlfriend. You don't <laughs> learn how to steal a wallet in the beginning. What do you and start with? Did, you know, in, in the beginning of a show, it wasn't so important when I was in my early 20s, I happened to get a booking to Pakistan of all places in Karachi. And it was basically a... Uh, a pseudo joint just for the girls to dance around and for the men to come and maybe hook up with them and buy them drinks in the bar. And then they had little crappy shows and I happened to be one of them. I was hired out of London where the owner of this hotel, it was called Cable Beach Hotel in Karachi. That was my first really professional booking of any magnitude. But in those years, I couldn't steal a wallet and I wasn't attempting to because I felt it was dangerous. People would come back and say, you know, there was actually uh, $200 here and uh, in my wallet, and now there's only 50 uh, Give me the other 150 So I was scared about this scenario. So I took all kinds of other things, you know, eyeglass cases and ties and belts and things. But it took me, I would say, about 10 years before I started to slide the wallet in. And I would return it on stage. So while the person was up on stage, there wasn't going to be any bickering where he said, well, you know, there was more in it. Now I can go out in the audience and I can steal it uh, while I'm in the room, not up on stage. And I have enough of a name, I guess, a clout where there isn't going to be an argument because I have respect from, from the crowd. Sure. Now you teach law enforcement how to catch thieves. What types of thieves do you specialize in? I assume pickpockets. And what are you looking for? Obviously, I don't talk about burglary and things of that nature. But on the other hand, I guess all crime, especially when it comes to what we would call diversion crime, where there is a bit of psychology uh, in the beginning. But, you know, a sheer mugging is a psychopath or a guy who has hopped up on drugs. It's a desperate individual or it's a sick individual or it's an under the influence individual. There is very little skills involved. While as other type of crime and certainly a certain type of burglary involve some psychology or research uh, weaknesses of the property, the type of keys involved, are the people home or not home, uh, what type of alarm system. So there's a skill factor there. And yes, I am involved to some extent in the research and training in that area. But of course, one has to separate the two individuals who do this type of crime, meaning the the psychopath who is using sheer brute force. And uh, a pickpocket is a very different animal. They uh, do not want confrontation. 
And when they are apprehended with police, uh, nine times out of 10, they don't make any resistance. They don't start fight. They just be very meekly put their hands out and have the cuffs put on them and then go up in front of a judge. Uh, that's not to say that they are not strong inside or uh, proud of their art and, and so forth. It's just that they realize they can get away with a shorter sentence if they don't have any resistance. A resistance means that you might be a career criminal and you get a, a longer sentence. So um, what we teach is uh, the observation, meaning what is it that a police should observe before the crime goes down. So if you take a hotel, hotel lobby or an airport, um, it, and there are many locations, the bottom line is behavior, mannerism, interaction between the criminals, the format the, of a group of criminals, how they move in unison. Okay, so can you get into some detail about that? Our audience is pretty educated on the psychology. We're talking about body language a lot. So can we look at really specific details? Great. Absolutely. You know, for a start, I have to tell you that the majority of law enforcement, regardless of what detail you might be working in, they stay for maybe three to four years in one particular area. And then in order to climb on a career, uh, they sort of move sideways, um, not necessarily always straight up. And that means that they're not necessarily experts at each, uh, so if you take hacking, for example, of a credit card and uh, the way the criminals um, get to the numbers, that takes a very special research and teams and education to catch that type of a criminal. My point here is that a regular police officer, passionate as he is about catching a criminal, may not have enough experience to have seen all the very, very small signs. And I can give you a very perfect example of this. I, a few days ago, attended and spoke at a conference in Cambridge in the United Kingdom called Decepticon 2015. And that was for three days. And it was only about how deception, how difficult it is to read. And so professors around the world, of course, are looking for uh, this, uh, when they try and help law enforcement to catch terrorists or, for that matter, any bad guys, we want to know before it goes down, uh, is there a certain behavior? If you have someone you suspect and you have a camera pointed at them or you listen to the word pitch or the speed by which they spit out words or you ask certain question and you want to see how fast they move in order to determine whether or not they're lying. And if they are lying, then, you know, uh, how long will it take to break them to find out who are they associated and so forth. The art of actually understanding how people behave is sort of complex. But in my case, I break it down by talking about the different groups of pickpockets. And by that, I mean the uh, level of sophistication. So if you take young, shall we say, Roma, Roma is the, the proper term for gypsy pickpockets since the word gypsy isn't really politically correct anymore. So the, the Roma pickpockets are easy to spot in terms of they are brazen and how they behave and how they interact. They're quite colorful, sometimes in clothes, and they're not shy about what they're doing. And the reason for that is that they usually 
work until they are 18. And if you apprehend someone up to the age of 18, you can't really arrest them for, for any long sentence. And so the people who steer them know that. Now, the next level of pickpocketing could be um, uh, two uh, young people who are working together, not maybe being in the game for too long. And they may have simply just an overcoat over their or a jacket over their arm to shield the actually extraction. So if for a police to apprehend someone, you basically should see the theft going down. Otherwise, the thief is going to say, well, it wasn't me. There was the person right beside. And the judge is going to say to the police, well, are you absolutely 100% certain that the man in front of me is the one who stole that iPhone out of the bag from the lady? And the police is going to answer back, well, he looked like it, and I think he did. I'm almost certain, but I'm not 100% certain. So when you have scenarios like that, they want to hide the extraction and they do that with a soft cap or a, a soft uh, uh, messenger bag that they have side weights over them or a jacket. So when you want to train uh, law enforcement, that might be the first thing. But that's not enough. Of course, there's going to be many, many other small signs because the better the thieves are, the more they know that the police are looking right for just these type of traits. Right, they've got to learn how to conceal it. So not not just getting good at the thievery, but getting good at concealing the thievery. That's right. And that might mean, for example, that if you take breakfast thieves that operate in hotels, uh, in the restaurant when they serve the breakfast, and you know there's so much action going on, there could be maybe uh, 60 people at the same time. So for someone who is on a monitor, uh, surveillance cameras, looking at the action, inside a breakfast area where the guys are sculpting for someone who puts a laptop bag down on the floor or a lady puts a handbag on the chair while she turns around and gets another glass of orange juice. You want to look for people, therefore, who are moving about or have a, a face reaction that doesn't fit into the rest of the scene. And that means a certain seriousness and possibly looking at a partner. And now uh, that may sound strange to you looking for a partner, but there is a certain amount of interaction and someone who is about to steal in the next five minutes isn't going to laugh. He's not going to be relaxed in his face. So there is a certain seriousness and observation right. glancing back and forth. The face turns at certain degrees. Maybe they're managing their nerves because they're about to make a move, something like that where they're Absolutely. not calm. Yeah. Correct. Therefore, you know, when we observe these um, pickpockets, we can categorize them. And if they hide their tools, that means that they may have a fanny pack where they have a selfie stick, for example. And that may sound strange to you, a selfie stick yeah, in a fanny pack. But if a lady's handbag is on the floor, if you open up the selfie stick and turn and sit with your back towards the victim and open it up, you can drag the bag on the floor maybe 60 inches over to your own foot and then move it over. And then you collapse the stick and you put it right back into your uh, fanny pack. If you're in front of a judge, you can always you know, claim that you had a selfie stick for the purpose of taking photos. So they may have also a soft uh, nylon or mesh bag inside that bag. So these are the little small details that at the first level, which what I would call not terribly sophisticated.
And now a quick message from our newest sponsor. Remember, supporting our sponsors is the best way to support the show. That's right. AJ, did you know socks, tees, and underwear are the three most requested clothing items in homeless shelters? I had absolutely no idea. Bombas knows, and they're doing something about it, making ridiculously comfortable versions of all three and donating one for every item sold. With all the clothing brands out there, it's nice to find some basics that don't just feel good, but do good too. That is completely amazing, and that's why we're so excited to be working with our newest sponsor, Bombas. To date, Bombas, one purchase equals one donated commitment, has helped customers donate over 100 million essential clothing items to people facing homelessness. That's a lot of good done by people just buying the Bombas they wear every day. Visit bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. And once you try Bombas, you'll know why so many people have purchased and donated so many. The comfort geniuses at Bombas work tirelessly to make your everyday things your favorite things. Whether there's an arch-supporting sock that feels like it was sculpted to your foot, a buttery soft tee with no itchy tag, or underwear that feels like nothing while supporting everything. The best part, AJ, Bombas has a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you got the wrong size, your dog chews up your socks, or a pair vanishes in the washing machine, and you know they will, it's easy to get a free return, exchange, or replacement. There's nothing worse than when Puppers gets a hold of my favorite Bombas athletic socks. They're precision engineered for being active with sweat wicking power, impact cushioning, blister defense, and no annoying toe seams that get between you and your goals. I try to limit my essential purchases to one time a year, and I was so pumped to know that Bombas has my underwear, socks, and tees needs completely covered. I have been loving the soft underwear and tees here in Medellin. Ready to get comfy and give back? Head over to bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash charm and use code charm at checkout. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people because they're all gonna give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now back to Bob Arno. 
So if you teach law enforcement to look for that, the next generate or the next level, I would say, of thieves is going to find the countermeasures like, hey, I don't need uh, little razor blades to slash open backpacks. I don't need a switchblade to defend myself when I get caught. I've got a selfie stick and a fanny pack, which is a fashion crime, but not necessarily a real crime. And you can always tell the judge, hey, I, you know, this is just normal stuff. I didn't I'm not out to steal or or something like you can make it look a little bit more like an accident. Then, of course, it becomes a cat and mouse game between law enforcement and thievery. What are the more sophisticated thieves doing? Well, the higher up they get on the food chain, the more they work in groups. And that means that there are several members in this group and they all have a very specific choreographed position and duty in what they have to do. But since they are in a group, law enforcement, of course, are looking for a group of three people or a group of four people that seem to work or move in tandem or choreographed together. And if they were very close, let's say within six yards of each other, and that might be the way they work in Italy. And there's a reason for why they can get away with that in Italy. It has to do with the prison system. There's only so much sentence. And, and to some extent, uh, law enforcement feels that if a tourist lose something, it's a, stu- you know, it's a, a stupidity tax, basically. And they can't lock up everyone because they need a jail for other things. And the tax system doesn't permit to build more prisons. So, uh, therefore, that particular country, you don't see tremendously sophisticated thieves. But there are other countries where you do see them. And um, just to give you an example of something high up the food chain would be four Polish pickpockets that are exceptionally well-dressed. And if you were looking at them at the Gadulion platform in Paris or in uh, uh, Las Vegas in a casino, you would not recognize that there is anything shabby uh, or that they have criminal intent. They will look just as smart, trendy, and cool as anything else, possibly even more cool than the majority of our American tourists in Las Vegas. They might be dressed straight out of Milano since they probably have worked there for two weeks every year. They will go to certain car races and they will go to uh, Monte Carlo for for a race and a horse uh, race in Ascot in England and so forth. They travel a circuit and they do that because there is a lot of money at those particular sporting events. But they are not close to each other. They, they stay much further away, probably around 40 yards. And they don't look at each other. So meaning one may only look at one of their members of four, and that guy looks at somebody else. So when they do move, they don't have to look at the leader. They do have a controller, a guy who sort of is in charge, but the interaction is sophisticated. And they are therefore hard for the camera to spot. When they finally do move in, they kind of get closer together, but not necessarily the entire group of four. So one may only have one job, and that is to look for law enforcement. So with his fingers, he will have a sign, maybe rubbing uh, the ear, touching a nose very quickly, uh, having two fingers extended in at the waist. These indications will tell the others whether they can move forward on the victim they want to steal from or whether they suspect that there is undercover 
police officers in the close proximity. That's cool, and it's it's more effective because one person can focus on distraction, one pers- person can focus on the thievery, and the other person is essentially a lookout. They communicate in a way that's probably all nonverbal. That's absolutely nonverbal. There, there is no uh, chatting between them. They do have uh, quite often a cell phone. One of them will have a cell phone and he'll be t- pretending to be talking to someone. Now, whether or not, because it varies depending on what cities they come from, uh, they very often there's a few cities in Poland where they seem to all come and, and it's uh, peculiar that it is this way. But they will have, you know, maybe one phone is on vibration in their pocket, uh, so they will know that it's go ahead or it's a warning. So they do communicate sometimes electronically. We do not see them work like the cheaters in Las Vegas, where they have vibration bands around their wrist or their ankles, where they can communicate in a more sophisticated manner. And so if you catch someone like that in Las Vegas, you know for sure that they're a cheater. We do not see that on the thieves. And the reason is that if they are apprehended and they had that type of equipment, they would instantly be labeled as a career criminal and the sentence would be uh, more hefty. Ah, yes, of course, right, because they're looking for the, it's, it's a ring at that point, it's organized crime at that point. And you've been traveling around and tracking criminals for a really long time. I saw the Nat Geo documentary, we're gonna embed that in the show notes if it's still available, but I found it, it really fascinating about how you're literally going to places looking for thieves now. Yeah, after the 360 days or so, I don't travel every day uh, tracking criminals in <laughs> different corners of the world. But I would say that one third out of the year, I am in the street, in action, and tracking. Now that's a little uh, you know, peculiar, but in these places where I do work, half of the time I have a very intimate relation at the same time with local law enforcement. And they usually like to, if not necessarily hang with me, have um, a daily interaction where we compare, we may look at photos, we may look at material, and we discuss about some of the new trends in other countries. So I become a library for this material. And sometimes because of languages or sometimes of the local laws and how long a certain nation is allowed to apprehend or or rather to keep some of this material due to privacy laws, there can be rules that a law enforcement agency can only hold on to material for so long. So they are very eager uh, to share with me and um, in, since I am not hired by the Swiss police or the German police, it's more that I am hired for the training purposes, but I don't have a continuing contract that would limit my behavior or what I can do and not do in those nations. The bottom line is that my relationship, therefore, with law enforcement is such that I can use my knowledge and my extensive library to train and then uh, speak in front of security conferences where I finally can get paid a lot better than I can from law enforcement. Uh, That's not to say that I'm looking down on my relationship with law enforcement. On the contrary, that's far more rewarding and I should say satisfying than standing in front of 2,000 bankers in Shanghai and tell them that if they're going to Paris, watch out for this or watch out for that. So, you know, there's enough of security conferences or, shall we say, banking or insurance um, 
conferences where my type of services um, is uniquely niched so that uh, I have enough of that to keep me constantly traveling. So I'm on the road actually 180 days. And the remaining days I stay in my home uh, spread out over the year, of course. And I try and fine tune when I'm home, edit my material so that if I am speaking for a banking conference or an insurance conference, I will have material that is unique for them so that I don't just repeat the same thing for each conference. How do you track the criminals at the technical level? I mean, I've seen you walking around, you have your like dummy wallet that sort of sticks out a little bit. What's the process like? Can you describe that for the those of us listening? Over the years, there have been different ways that I can use to um, entice the thief to approach me. And that's going to vary enormously in its most exciting way, or I should say a humorous way, is when they steal from me. Um, but uh, there are certain areas where either because of the language or because of the danger, uh, I may not uh, do that. So, um, if, for example, if I'm in Brazil, I am not going to let them steal the wallet because I will um, uh, find that uh, a confrontation there, it's unpredictable. But if I am, for example, in Lima, uh, in Peru, uh, I will. In Moscow, uh, in St. Petersburg, in Russia, I will be more observing the thieves than actually interacting with them. And interacting is where it gets exciting. I simply let them steal the wallet. Uh, that is in areas where I know that they're not going to clobber me and shove a knife into me. And that would be, for example, Paris and Rome or Barcelona. In those places, I, I let them steal the wallet and I wait some minutes and then I kind of side up to them. And uh, in Spanish or in, in Italian or French, whatever, I say, I do the same as you. For example, in French, that would mean je fais la même que vous. That means that they're going to look at me. And the first thing they do is they look down at my shoes. And the old thieves, when they analyze a victim, they start with the shoes. Uh, that may sound strange yeah, to you. That's weird. What, why? If they want to look for a victim, if they're a good pickpocket, they look at the bag, the clothes, and the shoes. And they feel that someone, if it's going to be a decent wallet with some money in it, if you have good shoes, you can be nearly certain that there is substantial money in the wallet. If you have a, a crappy shoes, it's a crapshoot as to whether or not there's something money. So there's always an effort in stealing a wallet. There's a, a significant effort of time. You follow, you track the victim carefully, you get to the right point where you can sandwich and create a little diversion to extract the wallet. So it, it's not, you know, spur of the moment. There is an investment of time and effort. And therefore, you want to make damn sure that when you do this, you have a good victim. So they're going to look at the shoes and the rest. And a cop is going to have shoes that he can run. He's going to want to be able to get to take chase. And he's not going to think about having some Brioni uh, Berlutti shoes from France that cost, uh, you know, 1,200 euros. Right. That's the first thing. Then they're going to glance further up. And they're going to sort of see if there is somewhere where he's carrying his cuffs. And they could be in a small leather container strapped to his belt behind, or he has a small bag that he carries where he has this equipment. They think, uh, to some extent, that they can smell a cop. They're very arrogant in this sense. And very often they can. In, I would say, nine times out of ten, they know who is a cop and who is not a cop. So in my case, 
I dress so that I look like a uh, non-threatening individual, hopefully a tourist. But the tourists, when they become a victim, are very emotional. They're going to shout out. They're going to be angry. They're going to say something like, hey, give me back that wallet. Some strain in their face. I don't do that. I kind of laugh and I'm soft in the face, in my behavior, and it diffuses the, the tension that happens and it confuses the hell out of the thief. So now he wonders who is it that he's seeing in front of him. But he's still slightly nervous because he knows he just took my money or my wallet. By the way, there is no money in the wallet. There's only a newspaper that are cut. There's sure. a shape of money so that you get the same weight. And as I lean into them, I might try and steal something from him. And that could be, uh, for example, a cigarette uh, or eyeglass case or a phone. Uh, something that is easy in, an, in a, what we call upstairs pocket. Downstairs is waste and dumb. You ever get? You ever do that and then get somebody else's wallet? Uh, well, I haven't actually stolen uh, a thief's wallet, but, oh. but many times I've stolen their phone or something or, or whatever that is higher up. And now, as I said, here, here's your phone. Now give me back the wallet. And when that happened, it baffles the hell out of them. Then they very often they will say, "Hey, let's go and have coffee together." You know, it breaks the ice. But that's only about, I would say, 15, 20% of the time that I have that success ratio. The rest of the time, I simply say, I do the same as you. Can we chat a little bit? And they answer back, why should we talk? Uh, they may at that moment drop my wallet on the ground since they don't want the confrontation. They sometimes think that I'm an immigration officer. Uh, I would say that 80% of the time, the thieves, wherever they happen to operate, are going to be illegally in the country where they work. So they don't want to have any confrontation or, or tracking or being um, pulled in in front of the law and then uh, uh, sent to another country. Where are they typically from? If 80% of pickpockets that you've encountered are illegal immigrants, are they Eastern Europeans and Western Europe, or what are we talking about here? Well, um, that's a, an intriguing and, and an interesting question uh, because I don't want uh, – uh, to imply that you have the best pickpockets from nation A, B, and C. But at, on the other hand, you have to say to yourself, like right now, we have a tremendous uh, immigration problem all across the world. So, you know, Australia are concerned about people coming in from India and Vietnam, and Europe are concerned about people coming in from East Europe and Syria <coughs> and France. And England are concerned about uh, people coming in from North Africa, Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia. So th this sort of problem is basically that people who are young and eager, capable of working, living in a country with very poor opportunities to climb out of the crap where they're living. So you take someone who lives in in Venezuela or in Colombia and is not um, having much opportunity, he's going to want to come to United States. It's that clear. And the same thing in Europe. Now, that does not mean that they become criminals. But if you take someone who is coming, for example, from Romania, since we have a lot of pickpockets in Europe from Romania, the reason is that they are young and capable and they come to a country where they think they're going to find work and they don't find work. So there's high unemployment 
And then a small percentage of these people are going to resort to crime. It could be simple crime, nothing particularly sophisticated. If they then get arrested while they are in prison, two things may happen. They get galvanized into, for example, they may, if they're Muslim, they may uh, get radicalized by their iman since they have a right to speak to the iman. And some of these imams are very anti-Western and um, they uh, doctrinize, in, indoctrinize them in the wrong direction. And so a small percentage of them, when they come out, could possibly become terrorists. So if you look at, since 9-11, every single incident of terrorism, they always have a crime record. Since they are rather simple mind. And that's one road that we like to track and look at. The other road is that if they are unemployed and they're working on a building site and then they lose their job and then resort to crime, they start, uh, one of the first thing they may do is breaking into a car. The second thing may be selling drugs. And the third thing is pickpocketing. So some of them are going to be darn good in this. Right, right. Sure. So you think they learn the trade after they come over with a legitimate trade and hit hard times. They maybe meet up with the wrong crowd or the right crowd for them and they get trained in this in country well that is i would say half of the ones that are coming from their home country we also have to know that it is not quite that simple so you also have absolutely professional pickpockets coming from albania from bulgaria from poland from romania from Algiers, who simply took the art of their craft from their home country, and they might have been arrested so many times in their home country that uh, they uh, find ways to now go abroad and continue. Occasionally, from South America, there are organized crime bosses that simply send them to Europe or to America to continue steal. And we find that when we look at when they send money home, it goes to bosses and not to their own family. And they're very hard to break. So when we catch them, they have a lot of scar tissue where they have been uh, either harmed or show in prison some signs where they've been cut. Uh, they do not talk. You cannot break them at all. You can't find out who the hell is that boss because they know if they do talk, uh, they're going to um, kill or harm their sister or relative at home. Yeah, that's scary. That's for sure scary. I, of course, I have to uh, make it very clear that that behavior does not repeat itself across all pickpockets. I mean, that's a unique thing among certain South American pickpockets. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. 
What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze your online marketing campaigns. And sign up today for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. All right, back to Bob Arno. I think just because a lot of people, myself included, had before I saw the documentary that you're in, again, that we will embed in the show notes, was that like pickpockets were teenage kids that just kind of learned a cool trick and they bump into you at Times Square and they take your wallet and they run off and they buy a skateboard. But this is more organized crime. This is a it's an interesting skill set. And a lot of the things that they work on take years. And in fact, in the film, you gathered a bunch of top pickpockets in Naples at a restaurant, like a trade convention after honeypotting these guys and setting it up and going to get coffee and meeting with these guys and and comparing some tricks of the trade, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, And then you went with them to steal in the wild, which I thought was really, really interesting. Tell us a little bit about meeting up with these guys and actually going hunting with them. Yeah, well, that was a... um a kind of unique challenge there. And I thought about that very carefully to what extent that was appropriate. And if you, for example, you know, there are some very famous um, hackers in America who have served time. And when they come out, they, um, they've done their sentence and so they're back in society. Uh, some corporations, when they hire them, they think twice about actually having someone speak in front of a crowd, even although they reveal things because they have served serious time. And why should we therefore pay them and sort of in an amusing way reward them for their time in jail? Right. And I did not want the reputation in this program of showing that I can be out stealing in the real world. I had some very serious questions about that. But the idea with the program was to make it go viral so that people become aware of the threat factor because, unfortunately, the police around the world cannot do more than what they are presently doing. There is no way that any government is going to hire more police officers to catch pickpockets. And so the actual truth is that nine times out of ten, even if the police know who they are, they do not serve any time. And the law, especially in Europe, is that if you steal less than 400 euros from a victim, that's $450, you only get a slap on the wrist. You get a fine. You do not get prison time. So what happens? The thief goes out and steals a little more to pay off his first fine. There is, uh, in other words, the police themselves all across Europe are very frustrated Even here in America, if you are doing a nonviolent crime like pickpocketing, unless you have some serious uh, records uh, on file, you get very, very little time. So I have felt that the only way you can open up people's eyes is to let people understand 
that this can happen to you. And I can tell you that just a few um, days ago when I was in Paris, I am with a Swiss police officer who has just arrived in. He's an expert at pickpocketing, has done so for, for, uh, for 10 years. And we are together with three other police officers. And I won't tell from what countries, but um, we are all coming in from the airport, except me who had, was already in. And we are entering the metro. And within three minutes, the Swiss guy loses his wallet from his little, what we call man bag, you know, a mail bag, whatever they call them, that hangs on the shoulder. Merce. And, you know, the attractive kind of bag. And in there was his police record, his police shield, his passport, and his credit card. That was within three minutes of entry. How did it happen? The door opened, and a uh, attractive, well-dressed Bulgarian lady uh, stood behind him. And it was crowded, and there was a bit of a lurch. She took the wallet, the door opened up, she took off. He never felt it until he checked into the hotel and he said, where the hell is the wallet? My point is, it can happen to anyone. It can be slick. And in this particular case, because there was a zipper, so it wasn't happening from his pocket, but actually from that bag. So that made it a little easier. I'm just trying to say here, the only way you can limit this crime is to make people aware. So this particular program that we had in mind, we wanted to end it on a fun note. But I had reservations about actually going out there and stealing. Right. I was going to ask you, you know, you you taught some of these guys some stage tricks. And I was wondering if you got caught in the moment and you maybe regretted teaching these guys some new ways to steal because they were already actually stealing. Yeah. I just want you to know that the everything there was, of course, instantly returned. And uh, because I was so concerned about the whole, uh, can we say, ethical aspect in the end, even although the producer was kind of goading me on to do this, he wanted it desperately <laughs> for the program. Uh, I wasn't so eager about doing it. I had some great reservations. Uh, so we finally did. The teaching, there is a, an instance there where I show one of the pickpockets how I steal a belt on stage. Well, you have to understand that in my case, I talk to my victims. So I may put the hand on the shoulder and I may ask him a quick question I'm getting nearby. And then I reverse, I sort of turn around. And with the back of my hand, I open the belt and I do an absolute 180 uh, degrees turn um, with my body in contact with the victim. Therefore, the belt is coming out. That you can't repeat in the real world uh, because if a thief comes up to an individual and says, are you from New York? And then start doing that move, uh, no one is going to sort of accept that premise. So thieves in the real world don't talk to the victim. It's a silent theft, a silent crime. You know, it's funny because uh, I actually caught, I shouldn't say caught, I spotted a pickpocket that went after my dad when I was in Switzerland. We were at a train station, which is prime time pickpocket, right? Correct. Areas. That's correct. And there was a guy and my dad walking ahead of us. And my dad, he's probably, you know, he's 70 years old and he, he loves to walk with maps and stuff sticking <laughs> out of his back pocket. 
and he's got a jacket with an elastic waist, so it goes over the back of his jacket, and he's got these jeans, and he's walking, and then there was a guy who was smoking, and he looked like he hadn't slept in three days, and he was standing <laughs> around, and he was he looked different than all of the sort of local Swiss folks, which kind of automatically gave me a little bit of pause, and he was he almost burned my mom with a cigarette because he had stepped out. I saw him laser beam focus on my dad. He just looked uh-huh. right at him after my dad passed, and he didn't notice we were with him because we were 10 feet behind my dad because, of course, like a classic dad, he's oblivious and just walks off without us while we're on <laughs> vacation. And so he almost burned my mom with this, but I saw him, and my mom goes, well, excuse me, and he didn't pay any attention to her. He's still looking right at my dad, and he walked up, and he kept walking a little bit faster. So I almost at a jog at this point walked up really, really fast, and then I stepped right in front of him, and I stopped really hard, and he bumped right into me, and I went, oh, excuse me, I'm so sorry, in German, and he couldn't get the German right away, which made <laughs> me notice, oh, this is his not his first language, he's not Swiss, I was right, and then I said, excuse me, do you know what time it is, and he shrugged, and then I said, what time is it, what time is it, leaning in, kind of not letting him just walk off, and then he looked at me again and looked at my dad and then kind of gave up because my dad was too far away, and then he said, sorry, sorry, and then he just walked back to where he was standing, so I know he was going to go and lift that because he went right back to where he was, Okay. and I I thought, wow, this is really, I was pretty excited, I was like, I just got a (laughs) pickpocket and I foiled it, that's really neat, even though he only would have gotten the map, Um, but it's scary because, you know, what? What do they do if you catch them in the act? Do they run away or do they punch you in the face? Well, of course, you know, that's a very valid question because obviously you like to know how should we, the the regular traveler, how should we behave if we sense that we are being confronted with theft? Yes, exactly. And the, the answer is it depends on the day and the location. If you are in a dark alley in in any of the eastern country, and that means including Poland or Bulgaria or whatever, and it's even 7 o'clock and the sun has set and it's not too much traffic around you, you have to be exceptionally cautious. It's, uh, you know, close to a mugging scenario. I'm going to give you an answer in, in a second here how you should behave. On the other hand, if you are on a crowded metro in Rome, for example, from Germany to the Spanish steppes, you can shout out loud and push them away or whatever, because uh, although the Italians aren't going to step in and help you, you made it clear to them, the thieves, that you are too much effort and they're going to shy away and go for someone else. They are not going to shove a knife into you. Pickpocketing is not always like that. It can also be uh, at 11 o'clock in Barcelona. And in the day, that particular street where you're on, it looks very attractive uh, with maps and little stores and things selling doodah. Uh, And in the night, it changes character and a lot of draggies are on here and they may shove you up against a wall. And you think it is pickpocketing, but it's actually uh, mugging. And they may say, mother, if give me the money. You should have what we call give up money. You should have maybe 10 euros or whatever and instantly give them. Pull it out from your from whatever you keep it so that it kind of drops to the ground. They have to bend down and then walk quickly in the opposite direction. When it comes to mugging, you have to analyze any dark street that you are entering and see where light and where the end of it is when you're in a foreign country and ask yourself, is this area, you know, hotel porter is the guy to ask them when you're checking in. Can I walk here in the evening? Is this totally safe or is it not safe? And 
parts of London that in the day are safe are not safe in the night. There are mugging scenarios. The same thing in Paris. It depends on where you are. If you're in Saint-Germain in the main tourist area, because it's so busy, you don't have to worry. You can walk in the night. Well, not necessarily past midnight, but it depends and you need to do your homework. And there are places where you get these answers. U.S. US government have a travel site where you can get this. Right. You, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that. You said, ask the, the hotel porter. And that's actually a good tip that I don't think I think it bears repeating because a lot of people will go, yeah, cool. Well, I'm already talking to the concierge. I'll just ask him. And here's a big difference. In a nice hotel or even a medium quality hotel, one that would have a concierge, for example, that guy is fluent in English, probably a little bit more educated, probably grew up in a very different place than the guy who goes out in the hot weather or the snow or the rain and lifts baggage and just brings it inside. Uh, And a lot of times the guys who are outside lifting bags, they're on the street 10 hours a day watching everybody go by. They know who's up to something. They see those guys pass by. They know who's getting robbed because they see the customers coming in and out. The concierge is in a completely different world. And a lot of times, especially in developing countries, a lot of times the porters grew up in the same neighborhoods as all the thieves. They hung out with all the same rough crowd and now they have a legit job. The concierge may be a different story. They might have grown up completely different. So asking somebody who has that type of upbringing, that type of connections, is gonna give you a different answer than the girl they hired to work at the check-in counter whose job it is to give a good first impression of the hotel. Well, you know, this is absolutely a valid point you're making, but on the other hand, location, 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 just like real estate, really, you know, there are some areas where you have to be far more concerned. And just to give you an example, uh, and now I'm going to start sort of pooping on, on a nation or two here, which I usually don't like to do uh, because I don't want to have, you know, be part of those. Tell me the worst 10 places in the world for blah, blah, blah. We won't do that you to know, you. I don't uh, like the idea of USA Today, five best restaurants if you don't know anything. So, um, but the truth of the matter is that if you, for example, are coming in by air into Venezuela, Caracas, you stand a darn good chance that there are lookers, spotters inside that airport that evaluates that you are a potential. And so they may either have friends with the taxis and the taxi gets sandwiched or you step into even the wrong uh, taxi and you get, you know, mugged halfway into town. Even the people who work with a passport sometimes have cahoots and they will uh, call up their friends and, and, you know, tell you, tell exactly what you look like and whether you are valuable or not. Uh, so there are certain countries like that. Now, take something like the Bahamas, which 10 years ago was one of the most charming destinations in the West Indies or for that matter in the Western Hemisphere. Now it has in the last few years, there's such bad unemployment and so crime ridden that the U.S. government consider it one of the most dangerous places in this hemisphere. That is per capita, meaning you can visit Nassau downtown and not get mugged, but compared with other places, it is very high up the list. And there are certain travel sites and certain governments, United Kingdom and Canada being two of them, who considers Bahamas to be the sort of place where you must warn people over and over about being superbly cautious. Interesting. Yeah, that's not something you hear a lot. Usually you think Bahamas 
boats and resorts. You don't think mugging and theft. You no, know, for example, never be on the beach alone in, in the evening. Uh, don't if you're a woman walk uh, walk alone or just two girls in a dark area or uh, along the beach, for example, at nine o'clock. And um, there is a lot of what I would call common sense that are necessary. Uh, dr- drinks that are being spiked. You know that uh, a few countries. I can't sort of start now giving you a list of ten places where a girl going to the club scene stands a good chance to have something squeezed into her into her drink but you, you get the, these uh, advice or these comments by simply prepare yourself so go on the internet and do a little research if you're going to go to free places that you have never heard of before you think they're exotic check out on the crime scene and the same thing you know applies with uh, with visas and hotels and restaurants there are, there's so much that you should do before you start your travel Now, I want to wrap with a little bit of what to look for, because, for example, I, I, you know, I spotted that pickpocket, but I can't necessarily articulate everything. It was just his focus was just too intense on my dad. He wasn't paying attention to other things and he looked out of place. But what do you look for and what can people listening look for when we're on a crowded bus, train or a crowded tourist area? What do we look for at the very beginning level to spot people who might be targeting us? Well, you've heard of the term train spotting, am I correct? Of course. Okay, so the same thing you you know applies to to thief spotting, meaning that the majority of us will will simply not be able to spot the thief unless we are starting to understand a list of maybe five to ten things that are um, necessary to observe. The first thing is that the majority of this crime happens at the doors of public transportation. So if you're taking the metro in Paris or in Rome, the thieves kind of loops at the door. They either step in, do their crime, and step out. So where that door area is, both in front of it, and that means that the thieves will not be the first one on board the train. They're going to hover around maybe two yards from the door, inspecting people as they rush in on a crowded train. And then they want to be in the jam and sandwich you. So look at the faces, the serious faces of these people as they're about to come in. The next thing is look at the angle of their face. The majority of people are going to look straight in as they board a bus or they're going to look up at an angle because they want to make sure they don't sort of trip on the person in front of them. They want to look at the space around. The thieves, on the other hand, tilts his head at about 45 to 90 degrees because he's looking down at the area of the zippers of the lady's handbag. He looks at the entrance of the pocket. Is it slanted sideways or is it cut at 90 degrees? So he wonders about, uh, for example, the wallet inside. We call it the print of the money, which basically means the four corners. The thief looks at where those four corners are in relationship to the top of the pocket. Is it two inches more of fabric or is it further down? Uh, If it's further down, they need to, what they call, kick the poke, which basically means flip the wallet up with another finger from the other hand and then meet it from the top with the extracting hand where they clip the tip of the leather, snipping it and then uh, zigzagging it out of the wallet, of the pocket. Um, So that's uh, number two, in other words, the angle of the face. Uh, Number three, if you're in a hotel lobby or in a station, they hover around. They... uh, 
they seem to aimlessly move from A to B without the purpose. Number four, they ever so often, they turn to see if they are uh, followed. They want to know if law enforcement are catching on to you. Now, for the majority of us, we don't want to spend that much time scrutinizing every person who is moving about. But if you want to catch them, you want to look at that. Then you want to see their face reaction. If someone is continuously appearing to be serious and not all the time looking up at the board for the next train or in an airport, when is the, you know, at the uh, meet at arrival hall, for example, they usually don't work at the departure gate. They work at the arrival gate. So there you have five things that are pretty typical if you want to really see them in action. Excellent. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Is there anything that you want to leave us with that I haven't asked you? Of course, we'll link to the documentary and things like that in the show notes as well. Well, um, I would uh, like to mention uh, two, three, uh, two, three very, very quick advice scenarios. One is be aware of what we call shoulder surfers. That means that even if you are purchasing with your credit card, and especially abroad, if you have the new uh, chip and pin, where four numbers have to be put in on a keyboard in order to, act, to get to activate your, your credit card, especially if you are in a place where you're not at an ATM. In other words, you're not getting money off, but you're buying, for example, a ticket and you think, oh, I don't have to be worried too much here. If they stand inside from a diagonally observing you, they may uh, check out that number and then they track you. They follow you for 15, 20 minutes until you are in a weak scenario and then they lift the wallet and now they max out the card and that's good for two to $4,000. So uh, observe that. Apple picking, of course, be uh, cautious when you travel abroad. Uh, if you're sitting in a very cute restaurant and you're having a cappuccino or an espresso and you put your phone on the table, don't let it sit there because they simply walk by and snatch it straight off the table. That is a very important thing. The credit card make uh, maybe have three cards, uh, one in leaving the room, in the room where you're staying uh, locked up there in the safe. And if they steal, you have that third card to use um until you wait for the next two. And uh, finally, put most of your important information on a small thumb drive, a flash drive. If you're really good, have it partitioned. There are certain safety flashcards that you can buy or thumb drives where you store most of the important things, like your uh, driver license, for example, your insurance numbers, uh, someone emergency to call in case of an event, and your passport information. If you have all of that uh, in a safe place on your flash drive, then uh, you, even if you have a bad scenario, obviously that little thumb drive should not be stored with the rest of your stuff in case they steal your wallet. Well, great. Thank you very much, Bob Arno, Professor of Pickpocketry. Thank you very much. Thank you. Fun to talk to you. Interesting episode, a lot of psychology there and a lot of nonverbal communication, really applied in a really interesting way, which I thought was pretty cool. And I've kind of been interested in this topic ever since I did catch that pickpocket who went after my dad, or spotted that pickpocket who went after my dad as well. And I think the documentary is worth a watch. It'll be linked in the show notes as well if you find yourself interested in the pickpocketry 
topic and the nonverbal communication and the tells, especially at a more advanced level than just the basics. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show's a fanarchy. It's run by you. We rely on you to keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit, let us know. Guests at theartofcharm.com. Bootcamp details. Remember, we're sold out a few months in advance, so get in touch early and plan ahead. That's at bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. Subscribe in iTunes. Write us a nice review. We'll love you forever, and it helps us outrank some of the schmucks in there. Not that we're not schmucks, but we want to be top schmucks. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.